Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, my name is John Kennedy and welcome to this special best of episode of Tape Notes, looking back at some of the highlights and memorable moments from the amazing artists and producers we were lucky enough to speak to in season seven. You'll hear from idols with Nick Launay and Adam Greenspan, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, Paul Weller with Stan Kybert and Charles Reese, Adam Buxton, Fontaine's DC and Dan Carey, Slow Tie with Quez Darko and SG Lewis. But we begin with Matt and Andy of Bicep, who joined us from their studio bunker in London, armed with the demos, stems and stories that shaped their album Isles. In what was possibly our most synth-heavy episode to date, the duo unravelled the technical mysteries and the abundance of sounds and samples sent from their many collaborators. They start us off with some of the angelic vocals they received from singer Rosina for a demo of their track Atlas. So what has happened here in terms of getting to this point? So that's, um, we sent it out to have this focus, Rosina, and she just did her choral take over the top of these strings. And the strings are the same notes that you'd heard in the previous pads. Yeah, and it was one of those things that when we got this back, we loved it. And we, well, you know, this works great. But it was definitely, this is an example of one of the ones where we loved, yeah, loved this as a sample, is incredible, but it wasn't right for where we wanted to take this particular song. It's like you hear these and you think, I hear different tracks, and it inspires us to kind of even say, okay, you could make a different track, because there's definitely rhythms and, and inflections of the voice that wasn't what we initially had in mind for this track, but this is definitely adding even more, and it's, it's like almost wasted trying to do it like that, but... Yeah, and this happened... I mean, we were, we were, for each demo, and I think in total there was about 150 demos across the album, but I think we sent out um, 25 demos to artists, and each demo was sent to about eight artists. So it was a big, really broad, and, and at that stage we just wanted to really cast the net super, 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 super wide. So this was the vocal sample that you yeah. originally tried on Saku. Yeah, and then below it is uh, the Bulgarian um, state choir, and that's through a gate. So we just we have this huge big um, choir sample. And we just fed it through a gate, and it's just a 909 hat triggering the little jabs of the... But obviously the 909 hat's been turned off, so you can't hear it. But what it's doing is giving out rhythm. Yeah, we'll use like 909s or the 808 particularly to create gates or, you know, keep things quite hands-on. Yeah. If we chopped up a vocal sample or even just put it into the MPC and tried to tap it in, it doesn't have that fluidity. Do you know what I mean? It's always going to sound snipped up. Whereas allowing a gate where you've got settings and you can kind of change the attack, change the threshold, even just the volume and and moving the um, the hat live gives you this fluidity where you can kind of... Keep bring them to life a bit more, you know? One of the things about the mixing on it, because it was so simple and with the granular, um, 
there was like eight layers of the piano. Some of them were, I think two or three were going through the granular and the granular basically makes them shoot, flicks through the sample at, at kind of random speeds and you kind of just have to harvest it and you have to take a recording. And sometimes that we would have recordings that just sound awful and you had to keep running it through the granule until you kind of got a rhythm that worked. And uh, it, I remember we spent a crazy amount of time on this for how it actually sounds in the end. Are um, we talking days? Oh, uh, no, quite a few weeks, but not in one oh, go, wow. but, but we're coming back to it over and over and over again. And, and then you start over listening to yeah. the piano noise and you're like, is that one glitching or is that one out of time? And then... Because they happen, there's a really quite a random element. If you listen just to the pianos, they, they flicker on and off and... So what's this version we're hearing now? Is this the this very is first This very, demo? very, very early demo. Where we experimented having a kick and clap, and when you put the kick and clap in, you, it becomes so obvious that those yeah. um, the clanging elements of the pianos, you lose that meditative quality because... It's not deep at all, is it? It's, it's like, it's like it, you don't concentrate on anything, you just concentrate on how chaotic it is, and yeah. it's like, it's almost distracting. Yeah. It was also, it's a weird vocal sample for us, because we'd never normally choose something like that and we were experimenting with like lots of different style vocals yeah and this is very much like you know what we grew up with you know like the, the obvious like church kind of like song I know, I Gregorian monks playing in my house all the time growing up in Ireland <laughs> <laughs> the harshest critics of ourselves are our friends and they're not scared to like say stuff about it so we're always sharing stuff on a blog and actually just trying to impress them like as if we were 16 again and we were sat at like a garage and we're fighting over the CD player. It's, it's always that same process when we're making tunes. It's like we're not really making them for the wider audience. It's more a case of we're trying to just give it to our friends and hopefully they like it. And uh, We were lucky that like when we were younger, we had a, a group of mates that were all very... Uh very heavily into their music and also very like obscure music was really you know kind of a big thing you know we, we were like 16 17 we were all going to like techno nights but also people were like making italo disco cds to bring out the kind of parties and it was very much like the idea of kind of curating a cd and this is like back in like early 2000s curating a cd and bring it to like um some pre-drinks and, and and having loads of obscure music that no one knew was like a real it wasn't cool to like bring a load of well-known hits do you know what i mean it was all about yeah. sort of digging that's definitely where the blog initiated from that idea of sort of uh, us just being able to share we just took that on and just create a little corner of the internet that you could kind of shape and sort of build matt and andy letting us into the world that helped shape the blog that started their career as bicep Next up, we turn to Idol's Mark Bowen with producers Nick Launay and Adam Greenspan digging into some of the great moments from the recording of the band's chart-topping album, Ultra Mono, taking their rowdy sound to the next level with the help of audio trickery, heavy-duty studio gear and some special guests. The episode also highlights the intensity brought by singer Joe. But first, we start with the backstage jam that went on to become the track A Hymn, featuring some unintended guest vocals. And that's me and Lee, and I kind of married up this guitar part that I had with Lee Bennett. You can actually hear Fontaine's DC uh, sound checking in the background as well. <laughs> 
You can already hear the evolution of like just the harmonic, the chords, and how the, the yeah. parts yeah. Are, are working together, making a really yeah. emotional. You know, it's already an emotional piece of music. Just that chord progression. Yeah. Can you hear in the background the? Oh yeah. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that bit there, the clack, 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 clang, clack. Um, Kenny Beats, who we got involved in the album in the kind of like mixing programming type stage, I sent him some of the demos. Uh, he, he called me up, just like, oh my God, you know what you've done? Do you know what you've done? And he's like, Joe's vocals. And he started just playing all different bits of war. And he played the clack, 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 clack. And he's like, listen, clack, 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 clack. Played it over and over again. And then he just hung up. And then I didn't hear from him for like four days. He was, just, <laughs> he, was just, he was just so excited. He was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, boo. I mean, one of my fondest memories of the recording of the record was when we were experimenting. I won't go into it too much, but it was ex we were experimenting with a, having two vocals at once. Bowen, you were singing. Yeah. I can't remember which song it was. But Mono you, Village. Yeah, yeah, because he, he sang a part melodically very well, and it just didn't sound right. So then I thought, okay, maybe Bowen could sing it melodically correct, like as in perfect notes. And then Joe could basically shout it and do his thing on top and put them both together and we did it and listened back and he was like no no that's not working and i said hang on a minute joe hang on look there's a way it's just how it's mixed if we put bowen in the back with reverb and you up front dry then there'll be two separate parts it won't sound confusing he came right up to me right in my face and says listen nick he says i know you're a really good record producer right but we don't want any fancy record producing on this record like reverb on vocals and <laughs> <laughs> we are just like that's awesome to me the sound of a baritone sax it is that big grindy heavy thing but the thing that had actually happened was the sounds that we had already created with guitars were already so big and deep and grindy that the baritone sax didn't actually sound like we had imagined. Mm. And it was sort of after the fact, because he had already come and gone, that I was like, well, one texture that could be cool with a saxophone, rather than the saxophone carrying a low register, would be to capture a higher register and in some sort of dissonant harmonies, like more of a sax section, mm. that gives you almost like a car crash, you know, like you know, someone laying on their horn on their car. And so I actually turned what was a single baritone sax into like an entire sax section. I'll play the saxophone soloed kind of as it was in the mix. It's been processed and, and you know, frozen so many times I would have to dig to find you the raw. Yeah. But suffice to say, this started with one single baritone sax and ended up like this. Yeah, it is one of our they just sent they, they sent this video through oh, and it's just it's the best david wearing this like red cowboy shirt and he's singing so loud that his face is the same color as his shirt and he starts with hey chad hey chad 
and then and then he rips off his shirt and on the last <laughs> he, like, shit he literally all the buttons go flying he goes and yeah. there's his bare chest and it's hey wow. shit I mean, that's so you know, that, that's the whole that's thing with him is it's all attitude. It's yeah. all attitude. And you yeah. know, when you've got a, a lead singer with so much attitude, you know, it's almost like the only thing you're going to get more out of is someone else coming in with that kind of attitude as well, you know, and, and matching it and adding to it. So Should we hear he some was the, he was the, Yeah, let's, let's hear yeah, him. Let's hear some Definitely. shit! <laughs> it's great. It makes you want to go and eat shit, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm going to try this shit that everyone's... Oh, right here, listen to this last bit. This is so good. <laughs> That's the last note of the song. Amazing. You know, a lot of people commented how fat and thick and big this record sounds like. And a lot of it is, is the compression, the type of compression. It's these EAR compressors that are quite uh, rare. And they have a way of just sounding enormous. I mean, yeah. it's a combination of that and the Neve desk. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it, but I would say the Neve uh, sort of 1081 EQ and mic pre's distorting as they do. And then at the end of the process, the way it's compressed with these particular uh, compressors on the stereo bus, which is uh, EAR, which are made by Tim Paravicini. I pronounced yeah. that right? Yeah. Extremely expensive. I think Extremely they're. expensive. We're going to exaggerate and say $28,000 for the left side and 27000 for the right. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Needless to say, we rent them. Yes, we, we rent them. them. We don't own them. <laughs> right. No expense spared to achieve their incredible results. Nick and Adam letting us into their production world. And now, for our next highlight, we venture around the globe into the Gizverse and the manic musical mind of King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard frontman Stu McKenzie. Discussing the albums KG and LW, both written and recorded in lockdown, we dive headfirst into their microtonal world with the first fumblings of their track, if not now, then when. I don't even know why I record this. Like, clearly I wasn't ready to record this. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. So, I mean, look, in my mind, I thought there was a song in, in that. And usually I would have been excited and come to the band or at least Cavs, the drummer, and said, let's jam this idea. Like, I've got this idea and we'd, we'd spend time workshopping it until it became a thing. But this time I couldn't do that. It was just like I had this idea in these kind of sounds and textures and stuff in my head and it was just kind of about, like, putting it together in a way that I felt comfortable to give it to the other guys or share because I can't pass that around. It's like, what, what the fuck is that yeah. dude? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it could go in so many different ways, couldn't it? Right. From that. So I remember the first thing that came together was this extraordinarily loose clav, which is kind of, I don't know, 
getting a bit dorky, but that kind of like really loose, unquantized kind of thing. It's like real badly played, but I wanted that sound. Well, it sounds great. You know, it's a tight power trio version of King Gizzard. I mean, that's why I came back to it. I think when we tracked it at the time, it was like, oh yeah, that's cool. I forgot about it instantly, you know? Yeah. And then I come back to it and I think, oh yeah, that's the reason I recorded it. I liked it. Or that's the reason why I like spent the time micing up my stuff, which is real annoying and boring. Like there's always a reason. There's always something in there. And most of the time I hate something as soon as I make it. But if I give it enough air, often I can come back to it and think, oh yeah, that's all right. Yeah. This was yeah. one of those. So here we've got just a Wurlitzer doing microtonal kind of like, it sounds weird by itself actually. There is a bass line. It's the only part there's a bass line in. We've got some Ambrose playing harmonica. It's also a, a little uh, flute patch. This is like just re-pitched, sampled, like logic. It's like not cool sounding or anything, but it's, I think it's cool because it's kind of like we re-pitched all the notes. Make it sound nasty, which sounds like this together. Yeah, that's kind of the jam. Kaz, the drummer, and I uh, kind of like feel time signature groove dorks. And I don't know how many people will pick up on this, but each time the it brings in a new riff, it changes time signature and it like adds a one. There's a groove here that is barely a groove because I'm calling it one, but it's it's just got one note. And then we move to this next feel, which kind of has two beats. Kaz ended up changing it, but it's 4-4 four, four, really, but I'm calling it two. We move into a triplet feel, like a three. We go back to four. Then we're in five. You might call it 10. I call it five. Then we're in six. And then we get back to seven, which is right here. We get to the thing. 
it goes on. We get to 21. Wow. <laughs> so much of my favorite music was made before computers, you know, but I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for a computer. Like, I'm like the biggest computer geek of them all. You know, I love this thing. It is literally the most important instrument I own. Yeah. I'm lucky to live in this time, I think. Um, you know, we've made records all to tape and, and tried to not touch computers and things like that. I'm, I'm also keen for that. That's a cool kind of like creativity, like uh, make a box so you explore the box, you know, so you yeah. go to the corners. You make a box so you explore all the corners of the box. Sometimes if you don't make a box, you get lost. Um, I'm down for that too, but I love tech. It's the best. Stu McKenzie embracing all the possibilities of the modern world. And now, from one musical innovator to another, Paul Weller, a legend and cultural icon whose never-ending creativity has inspired generations of music lovers. We met up with Paul at his Surrey studio, along with producer Stan Kybert and engineer Charles Reese, to talk everything from writing on kids' Casio keyboards to recreating the sound of an era. And to start, Paul recalls the moment on a trip to LA that inspired the title track of his album, On Sunset. I was staying in a little uh, boutique sort of hotel, I guess, just off the strip. And I just had a little walk around a man around there. And anyway, on the on the block near the hotel was the Whiskey Go-Go and then the Rainbow Rooms next to it. And then I was, I was like, well, I haven't been here for so long, you know. I mean, I've been at LA countless times, you know. But just to stand in front of the whiskey, I have not stood on that spot for since. And I realised how long it was, you know, since I was like 19, the first time I ever went to the States, you know. And that's where we played in the whiskey with the jam, you know, in 77. And uh, I just thought, my God, you know, it's just so such a 40, over 40 years ago since I sort of actually stood here. And so it, the song just sort of came from that, you know, it wasn't based on anything more factual than that, what I've just described. Yeah, so it just then it became more of a story, and there's this person who finds herself back on this spot and then maybe goes to look and see if any old friends are still around or lovers or whatever it may be. And of course, everything's moved on, everyone's moved away and got married or whatever's happened, you know. So it became a, a little bit of a sort of story as well, I suppose. You know. So is that the kids' Casio then? That Yeah. Yeah, so it's before the piano's put on it as well then, yeah. The sound of soul. Uh, that's where it comes in. So this is the demo, and is that piano from that room over there? Yeah. Yeah. So again, the beats are samples. The, what's there? The Casio, so play to the beat. So initially it could be click and then program a beat to that and then start layering instrumentally. And this vocal sounds pretty fluid, right? Yeah. So I would have thought, let's just hear what's happening on the chorus. No bass there. Beats. No Casio. There's a Casio, but you put it for a filter, so it's going. So then, instrumentally, I would have thought we built it and then put it to some arrangement that Paul had in his head, and then a vocal on top. Yeah, this is the earliest. I've got April 2018. 
we wanted that authentic early 70s drum sound so not stereo not like so it's a mono kick snare overhead a lot of compression could we hear a bit of that yeah so the drum sound all together yeah so there's the bass drum which is going for a guitar pedal because there would be a quality within I guess we well I know we were going for a sound that had been processed like a drum sound from the 70s right so it would have been recorded to tape it would have been cut we wanted to retain an element of breakbeat quality and you know 70s recordings it could be tape distortion or you know the Motown guys are well documented in they you would use distortion from the valve mic pre's for excitement and energy yeah it technically didn't sound right yeah but it enhanced the performance right so that would have been something we would have been chasing um the snare so it's going to the plate that's at the barn so the plate again authentic 70s not overly dark but not overly bright either and then the the coals overhead so the coals is a ribbon mic say 40s technology now so we're using a ribbon microphone overhead captures as much from behind it as it does below it so it's over the kit so it's getting the close of the drum kit but it's also capturing the room tone and then we processed it through the vacuvox it's kind of a remake of a Fairchild compressor which the Fairchild was used a lot of Beatles recordings I guess made famous on the Beatles recordings but again it's that Vintage microphone, vintage mic pre, vintage compressor. What like eighty percent of the sound is there, and then it's the and then it's the drummer. When you've been an artist who has probably lost count of the amount of records that you've created and the amount of performances you've given, to put all that into a succinct, handy phrase must must be very difficult unless well, you're only as good as your last record at your last show right that would be my advice yeah and that's what i've always lived on really and i would say from the other side you know not because i'm in any way technical person at all and i've got a lot of respect for the engineers and producers and all the people behind the scenes if you like you know but i think for any sort of budding engineers i just think it's really important not to get don't get too hung up on the on the equipment side of it you know Obviously, you've got to learn all that side of it. But listen to the music, you know, keep on listening to the music and hearing the tunes and what the artist is trying to get to. Do you know what I mean? Don't just look at the screens and the meters, you know, try and hear it and feel it as well yeah. as much as you can. Unless you're working with a piece of shit and obviously it's a different thing <laughs> together, isn't it? But if it's halfway decent, you know, try and understand and, uh, yeah, don't get too caught up just in the technical thing. Wise, wise words from Paul Weller. After all, he should know, shouldn't he? Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with highlights from Fontaine's DC, Slow Tie, SG Lewis, as well as some special clips from our chats with the Jingle King, Adam Buxton. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. 
Many of our guests on Take Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. Earlier this year, we recorded something slightly different. A very special episode with the one and only Adam Buxton. From Song Wars on the Adam and Joe show to music production advice from Nigel Godrich, Adam gave us a full rundown of his life in comedy, radio, podcasting and TV, illustrated with those songs and jingles that punctuated each moment. There will be sausages, but first, we travel back 30 years to hear the results of a young Adam being kept up into the early hours by friends Joe and Zach. So that's Joe and Zach, and they're singing some yeah. of the words that you you were being kept up by. Yeah, so that is mainly Joe and Zach and me doing uh, some backing vocals in 1991, I think. Wow. And It's amazing um, that you've still got that. I've got everything, man. I'm a hoarder. I'm an archivist of absolute dog shit you know i've kept everything and recently i've been gradually rationalizing it in my middle age having a bit of a midlife crisis aged 51 thinking what am i doing with all this crap Chipolatas, they are tasty yum yum i did a video for this one as well sausages mm, i would like to eat my sausages but sadly they're raw sausages Please keep your distance from the sausages Or I'll show you the door Sausages So I thought, I am on fire This is amazing stuff And <laughs> <laughs> and I did a video, my friend Garth Jennings who, who is a brilliant director, music video maker He directed me and I was naked Except for a Carmen Miranda style hat Made entirely out of different types of raw sausages it's disgusting it's a disgusting thing especially now in my own personal life i'm trying not to eat meat as much as possible and looking at it now makes me a little bit ill but it was sort of funny <laughs> and the hat was the meat hat was so heavy that it, it kind of weighed down on my head and made my eyes go all droopy 
and made me look sort of sad and melancholy. And I'm and I'm holding up two uncooked sausages on forks and shaking them like maracas. It's online. Um, anyway, so this was the beginning of um, me and Joe doing lots of these songs over the next three or four years for uh, six music. But it became so... I got way too into it and I started getting more and more ambitious. I got very competitive. I got very upset when, you know, when that, whenever there's a voting situation on. Oh, what a weather look at that film today. So I spent about a week. I mean, I spent the whole week doing it. It's like, usually the whole idea of Song Wars is you're supposed to toss it off as part of your prep, like maybe spend half a day prepping for the show. Otherwise it's, you've got other things in your life and it's not workable. I lost sight of that, and I spent the every hour of every day for a whole week before we had to do these Song Wars pirate songs. Maybe I even said to Joe, like, I'm not ready, we're going to have to delay it for another week. <laughs> so I'm still in my pirate hole. And I used the voice of Ken Cord, my kind of um, Melvin Bragg-style cultural commentator character, to do the song. Because I'm still like, haven't found a natural voice that I'm comfortable with doing all these songs. It was always a parody of something else. But I got into it and there were so many different sections. And later on, there was, I dragged in some of these nice kind of 70s sounding singer songwriter piano loops. And I think I cried maybe while I was recording it because I was so moved. I was moving myself so massively. Like this bit, hang on. Yes, the world is changing. I don't like it. So initially, I always sing stuff and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to try and sing something that's a bit kind of hip hoppy, rappy, but what about? And I'd been on the train on the weekend and there was a person opposite me on their phone having this conversation that just went on for, I'm not joking, 45 minutes. And every now and again, they would hang up, but then they'd call back and it would carry on. And the whole conversation was like, yeah, no, I haven't got my charger. No, I haven't got it. No, that's her charger. No, 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 my charger was on the table. No, that's your charger. No, I haven't got my charger. I swear to you, <laughs> 45 minutes. And they would be, you know, it would conclude every now and again. All right, bye. And then it'd be like, all right. Yeah, no, I haven't got my charger. Yeah, that wasn't, that was her charger. <laughs> oh my God. It was incredible. <laughs> And so that was in my head that weekend when I sat down at Logic. And so I did some charger. Where's my charger gone? Who took my charger? I left it had this sort of kind of anemic melody. Where is it? I really need it. It wasn't that great, but it was a place to start. So then the next thing I thought was like, okay, this is too on the nose, this voice. I've got to take it away from that somewhere. And then thinking about like someone complaining about their phone charger and I left it there and where is it where who's taken my phone charger that reminded me of my dad who was dead by that time but um that was one of the things in my head that he would often bollock on about was where's my charger so I did a version where I'm channeling my dad where's my charger gone where's my phone charger the battery is about to die it was on the table. 
So here's a name drop for you. Nigel Godrich, who I met when I became friendly with some of the Radiohead people. He, this is not a great anecdote, actually, because I can't quite remember what he said. But I think I'm pretty sure he said, when it comes to panning vocals, go extreme left or extreme right. Don't go in the middle. Like, don't worry about, oh, you know, I'll go 16% or whatever it is. Just go right the way left or right the way right. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna, that's going to be the way I do it. I think that's what he said. Or maybe I misremembered it and he said, never go extreme left and <laughs> never go extreme right. That's what amateurs do. Anyway, but that's what I did. And so this is what I ended up with with the vocals. Text the nation. Text, text, text. Text the nation. What if I don't want to? Text the nation. Our producer said, yeah, but what about if people email stuff? So I added. Text the nation. But I'm using email. Is that a problem? It doesn't matter. Text. Wonderful. And Nigel, if you're listening, please let us know what was that advice. And by the way, if you fancy it, we would love to have you on an episode of Tape Notes. For our next highlight, we turn to Connor and Tom of Fontaine's DC with producer Dan Carey to find out how they captured the raucous raw energy of their Mercury and Grammy-nominated albums Doggerel and A Hero's Death. Here's Connor talking about the pivotal gig when Dan first saw them play live. Whenever we started out, we would just turn up as loud as we possibly could. And the PA in the place, like we couldn't get Green's vocals over the sound of our guitars. And especially having no pedals as well, it was just like dry. And I'm pretty sure my amp had no reverb, so everything was just like really loud and really dry. And we had like the monitors, you know, that would be facing Green. They were pointed towards the... <laughs> we were trying to use everything to like get the vocals out. But um, I thought it was an awful show, but Dan seemed to... To think it was, I loved it. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, that gig informed the recording of Doggerel. Because mm. you you said what you liked about that sound was that it was so chaotic and it was like let's I try. Wanted and, it, I wanted it to be raw because the experience yeah. of standing there, being confronted with this incredible sound and Graham. I remember being quite intimidated by Graham for the first time. I was like, "Fuck, what's he going to be like?" So like <laughs> and. Uh, that sort of experience that you have is quite difficult to to kind of reproduce on record because obviously you're not it's not going to be that loud and it's not just a sonic thing you have to kind of get that feeling and so we decided to record in blocks of songs and try and make it like a performance so we'd sort of take three songs treat them as one thing and do it on analog tape so that if anything went wrong in any of the songs we would go back to the beginning of the tape and wipe it so it just creates this kind of pressure that, you know, in the way that you can't stop a gig and go back to the beginning. So it was, it was kind of intense. But I remember like we'd mm. only just met and I was like, yeah. right, OK, <laughs> if you want it to sound like that, we have to do it like this. And you were like, yeah. OK. <laughs> and am I right in thinking that you would record these rehearsals and then go away and listen to them and then rearrange the song according mm. to, you know, your thoughts, your further thoughts and discussion. So everything is quite analysed. Definitely, yeah. I feel like we spend a lot of time like drafting and redrafting tunes. Like, so mm. yeah, yeah, it's quite a long process, really. Because we'd listen to them in your car back yeah. in the day. We'd like finish rehearsal, get in the car, play the phone recording, <laughs> and be like, "Oh, this seems too long in this place." Or like try and remember thoughts we had about it, and then just re keep going at it. Yeah, yeah. until it felt right. The vocal um, sounds amazing. Yeah, isn't I actually it? love that vocal sound.
to kind of get the sound for everyone in the room even more extreme rather than having the amps spread around the room kind of each in their own little place like they are now you know they kind of there's the normal way of doing it is just like this we we got all of the amps and put them well we built this kind of castle that was a castle of amps but it was surrounding the drum kit pointing outwards and you set it up in the way that like my amp would be left you know yeah it's it's the stereo so basically you could stand here and hear a very very realistic stereo image the bass amp was in the middle in front of the kick curly had two amps and they were both like somewhere between the floor tom and the kick Mm -hmm. and carlos's amp was there and they were all kind of standing on things and it just it looked bizarre but it also from a technical point of view and i hadn't really thought of this but until doing it and then realized that it's really good because wherever you put a mic in the room it doesn't really make any difference where the mic is the sound from all amps and the drums is hitting it at exactly the same time whereas obviously if you've got an amp there the drum kit there if you bring the mic this way then it's going to get the sound from that amp a bit Mm. sooner than it gets the sound from a kit and so if you have another mic that's closer I don't know, it just kind of makes it more complicated phase-wise, but when you do it like this, you can just put mics everywhere and they just all sound really coherent. What that is, is, yeah, a mix of all the guitars through an extra reverb and coming out of another amp, but going through a pedal that you also connect an input from the kick drum and the kick drum dips down the sound so that it's kind of it's this kind of sound but it's rhythmically connected with the drums so you can sort of hear if you just you can hear it's just going fluctuating in time with the drum and it just kind of what was that what was that so <laughs> <laughs> happens when we're doing this <laughs> this is like the dub mix So when you mix it back with the guitars, it was on the board as like Curly and Carlos's love time or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And uh, we finally did it, and like it is one of those songs that it's great when it happens. It's hard to come by though, but we literally just played it in one go, and the whole arrangement and like Green sang like pretty much all the lyrics, just like on the fly. In the rehearsal room. Yeah, yeah, and the song was just done then. Wow. Had he and not written the lyrics as a separate thing before? I think so. Wow. And do you have a recording of that? Is that moment? I think we have captured? a demo there, I think, yeah. I think yeah. that's we did that. We played it and wrote it in the space of about 20 minutes, and I think this demo was just like right after that. So it's yeah. like the second time we've played uh. the song. That's a magical time when that happens. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so nice. So good to hear that moment of creativity captured there. Fontaine's DC, fantastic stuff. 
Next up, Slow Ty and producer Quez Darko take us behind the scenes of Ty's number one album, Tyron, as well as sharing the attitudes and philosophies that lie at the heart of their tight artist producer relationship. The pair dug into the details that have the power to transform a track. But first, we join Ty as he is forced to take the engineering reins from friend Samo whilst laying down vocal ideas on the track Mazza. I like that kind of way of just, let's go, let's just do it. And I thought, fuck it, just lay it. I was fighting Samo, like, record, record, record. And he's like, ah, oh, because he's always high and shit. And he's like, no, I'm like, record, man. This is a slap, this is a slap. He was like, ah. Oh. When I'm pulling a uh, muddy dungarees, hey, make the place look like a muddy scene. Hey, when I make moves, I'm a money fiend. And I must have recorded the chorus, and then that was it. I'd left it from there. I remember ringing Rocky, like, because we had it, and I get guessed. I'm one of them people, like, when I'm my friends and my family and everyone, I'll ring every one of them, and I'll be like, Listen to this, and they they can't hear it through a phone. <laughs> like I got a nickname. Who's called... doing this? Right? Yeah, like they can just hear bass rattling the phone, and I'm like, it's hard in it, and they're like, yeah, 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 and I'm like, why can't you see the vision? <laughs> you know how, how simple this shit is. It's that. Boom, clap. Simple, you know what I mean? Clap, yo, <laughs> we're in it, we're feeling it. That's that. You know, that's how the beat starts. Is like, when yeah. you're going through it, I always like them videos. There's videos where people are like, making beats in the melody. And as soon as the clap comes, that's when it's game. Like, cause it's before the clap. Yeah, you got the vibe, but it's like the carrier. It's like that one point that brings you back around. So there's this thing as well where Pharrell, and Chad, they're like talking about what a beat should do, and it's like the you should snare, feel the, the back of your yeah, neck. the boom in your chest, yeah, and then <laughs> the clap, like the snare, should be like your neck popping, mm. like bam, like you're clicking <laughs> your neck, and that that shit always just stuck with me. Huh? 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 It's just that I, I think my thing is that's like another form of expression. So I just make whatever I'm feeling, then. Is you have a good time doing it, you know what I mean? Like, and it creates like a bounce, like an under rhythm. It's like when you have them kind of do up singers, but this is our way of doing that, I suppose. That's the thing as well, mics. I'm telling you, like, anyone out there who's aspiring or want to get a studio. If you're a vocalist or you you know who you're working with, there's certain mics for certain people. U87 might not be the best mic for me, you know what I mean? There's Recently we used one that's like crazy, but it's mad expensive. Like, but there's certain, there's obviously a microphone for each person. It's like in Harry Potter how there's a wand. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't necessarily choose the bike, the bike chooses you. That's yeah, true. So I think through experience of going places, you learn like what, it's like an additive, if anything, or how it's picking it up. But U87 is pretty flat. You're not really getting much, you're yeah. not getting warmth, unless it's a super old one. But just find your mic, I said. That's, yeah, that's I all I that wanted to well. say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I bought a strap random just one day going through a mad phase. 
And then I basically played like a section and we just put it through, like chopped it up, put it through a half time. And then like there's bits of it that I think are reversed and just fucked around, restructured it and that's what essentially come out. And once it was that, it was like the usual, just some drums. Nothing too complex. My beats are never like, they're not gonna be sounding mad. It was me, Samo and Josh at the point working on this. And it's like them two, they overcomplicate a lot of things. And I'm like, for this, I wanted it to just be simple, you know what I mean? Straightforward. But then from that, I just wrote. And it was like the one beat where I fully got in, immersed in my feelings, if you will. For my mates, then again, would they say the same? And it's just explaining how I was feeling with my life and how everything is gone and what my shortcomings or downfalls are. I know my whole ethos behind creating music, and same thing with Ty is inspiring others to know that you can make the change in your life. You are the person, you know, your mental capabilities are what is going to push you to achieve greater than anyone else even sees. That like we have a vision that people, we got, you could say to someone, they think, oh, you're crazy. But my, in our brains, like, no, we're not crazy, actually. Like, yeah, we want to get Grammys. Yeah, we're going to get Grammys. Like, but people think, what? But you guys are just some little guys from UK and that. Like, how are you going to get Grammys? And da, da, da. But for us, it's like what we're pushing for is that and when we, we we look at all the ones that inspire us they started off from nowhere as well do you know what i mean it's like not everyone we look at it and just see the bigger picture like there has to be a build-up do you know what i'm saying and when you've seen coming from nothing girl about britain to tyron like it's important for us to know that we've grown and to see that the world outside are um seeing the same growth that means more than any accolade that you can give us do you know what i'm saying or any kind of reward you're going to give us because that means that someone's uh, pushing to be better because they seen Ty who's come from Northampton and it's like, yo, what, nothing happens in Northampton. Do you know what I mean? You're not meant to be doing this. You're not meant to be winning hero of the year or being number <laughs> one or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, but really you are. We all can do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not no special person. Ty is no special person. It's just that we've just pushed and said, you know what, we could be better. We don't want to be the same. We don't want to be stuck here. But it's not just music, not just art, just in life in general. It's just that's what we should be doing anyway, do you know what I mean? So, yeah. I love listening to the motivational wisdom of Quez. Amazing stuff. Thank you, Quez. And now, for our final episode of the season, going out with a bang, we were visited by S.G. Lewis, who immersed us in the deep disco grooves of his debut album, Times. From the beauty of imperfect performances to the magical moments when something just hits, Sam has so many great stories to tell, including the shaky first moments of a time-tied writing session with Lucky Day. But we start with another story of collaboration with a disco god. I was a huge champion in new music, and um, he hosts these sessions down at Abbey Road where he was basically working with a bunch of you know newer artists and kind of a lot of people got an opportunity to be in the studio with Nile Rodgers who I guess typically you wouldn't expect to including myself and it was an amazing day and it was a studio session with like a few other people in the room and we made something that I don't think ended up being released but it was you know good fun and stuff and at the end of the day Nile said to me he was like oh, I'd 
love what you're doing and like I really enjoyed today and if you ever want me to play on anything just let me know and I was like <laughs> yeah sure like that's like being given the golden ticket or something it was just you know Niall was such a nice guy but even I was just like there's no way you mean that <laughs> you know like in my head it was just like that's very nice of you to say but I'm sure you're very busy being Niall Rogers and um, so really at that point I was just playing the demo and I was with my manager in a car and it was my manager who was like this is, song's really cool and it's obviously got like a disco groove what about Niall Rogers <laughs> and I was like yeah 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 alright like calm down but he sent it he sent it over and it was pretty much instant that Niall and his team were just like let's go I've really gotten into using analog synths a lot more and um, it's something that pretty much do exclusively now i used to be a lot more vst based but there's something about the mistakes that you make when you're playing something that i mean when you hear this you can hear that the velocities of the chords are different every time and then the filters react differently as a result because of the envelope on the the filters and it just means that you're not hearing the same thing again and again and i think when i play that back and listening to it it just there's slight sort of timing mistakes as well that are being caught either side of the sidechain compression that just give it some life, I think. And um, I've really enjoyed using analog sense and playing a lot more because it forces me to commit to those mistakes because I'm definitely guilty of over-editing myself and trying to perfect things, but it can often kind of suck the life out of things. Music's frustrating because you like, you put in weeks of work for the 15 minutes of magic and but if you're not on the field you're not gonna catch the opportunity to score the goal you know it's like if you're not in the studio for weeks butting your head against the wall then you're not gonna catch that moment when it comes and it's frustrating because those they can feel rubbish that feeling when you're stuck in a dead end but like it's always gonna end and that magic's always gonna come back and you're gonna know when it's there you know it's mm. like I you know, I've really taught myself not to lie to myself, not to be like, yeah, this is amazing if it's not amazing. Because it's like, we all know it's not amazing. Because if it was amazing, we'd be on our feet. <laughs> you know? I turned lucky and I'm like, oh, so you've heard the instrumental. He's like, what instrumental? And I was like, oh, no. I was like, oh, God, it's, this is happening. It's not going to, this isn't going to come together. And then I played it to him. He's like, oh, yeah, of course. And I was like, Phew. all right, okay. So then he's like, oh, we're going to go outside for a smoke. So he's uh, he's outside and I'm just kind of like, I really want this to go well. So I've got like the mic set up and stuff. And he comes in, very casual, very cool as anything. And he was just like, cool, put me on the mic. And he's listening to that build up. And then the first thing he does, he kind of hits this melody without lyric. And I'm looking at this now and he was just writing on the mic and he was just changing it lyric by lyric. So he's like, you know, take five where he goes. <laughs> And then, you know, by take 12, it's this. You can hear the words coming slowly, and then it's. So the hook just, within five minutes, we had it. And it was just like grin on my face. I was like, what? Had this kind of disco break, bongo break, clap on top of it. 
there's a sub kick and a top kick. So like a club kick and then a real subby one underneath it. And then bass line. Little guitar part I added. And then some OP1 stuff noises. Some little disco sounds from the little library, this thing. Little cheeky noise. And then little whirly fills from Matt. And then I added some big piano chords. Little reverse and stuff, but you'll hear the difference like a, a hi-hat can make. I'll show you here. Coming in here, hi-hat comes in. It's so small, but it just completely changes yeah. the difference between the verse and the chorus. And that's really it. And then there's the strings, the vocals, but we kind of ended up with... A great way to round off our best of season seven, S.G. Lewis taking us through his amazing music. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. We've only scratched the surface of our favourite bits from the season in this best of. There's so much more musical goodness, inspiration and wisdom to be had in the full episodes. So do check them out if you haven't already. Links to all of the albums featured this season can be found in the episode show notes. And now to round off our season seven highlights, we turn back to our special episode with Adam Buxton as he delivers a touching farewell and plays us out with one of his podcast classics. It's always been a dream of mine to act as if I'm on classic albums and sit there with someone that I respect taking me seriously and acting as if I am Brian Wilson or some other musical genius. So this has been great. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. And this is Like and Subscribe. Don't forget, give me a little smile and a thumbs up and a nice little pat and my bum's up. Take care. I love you. Bye. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Please like and subscribe. Give me like a smile and a thumbs up. Nice like a pat with my bum's up. Give me like a smile and a thumbs up Nice like a pat with my bum's up